passage that are kind of I find actually a challenging passage uh, to preach because it's it's like one of those passages that just are um, predominantly a passage that has uh, bad news. <laughs> bad news. It's, it's a passage about judgment. In fact, I was thinking about as I preached through Isaiah, there's uh, all sorts of judgment. I think, wow. Um, well, that sounds like a broken record after a while to many of us as we hear judgment coming upon judgment. Um, but uh, hopefully uh, that this won't be something that is just goes in through one ear or another, but that will really um, grasp the, the darkness of this judgment that is that God pronounces on Isaiah. Uh, but it's a judgment that is uh, in existence even now because of the God's holiness, God's wrath. It's a judgment that is coming upon. There's a judgment that is coming upon the world. And uh, that this passage would make us realize and appreciate more of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So let's pray. Let's have so that we would prepare our hearts now, even as we come to hear His word. Father, thank you for your word once again. And Father, in this in this dark passage of judgment, we pray that we would see the light of Christ, that we find our hope in Him. In Jesus' name, Amen. If you like to watch movies, uh, you know that nowadays Hollywood likes to make trilogies, uh, actually four-part trilogies, it seems this. That's the way that it goes these days. But trilogies, that in the old school days, it's, trilogies were three, uh, three movies. But you know, uh, whenever you get to that second movie, you can always tell there's, there's, a, there's always a pattern, right? The second movie is not where the, the triumph takes place, is it? The second movie in the trilogy is always that movie that's the dark movie. It's the one where the, the evil people strike back, you know. And uh, it's, it's those movies where, uh, where uh, the, the champion gets defeated, you know, has to, has to look for the eye of the tiger. Well, you know, stuff like that. That's how I'm dating myself. Um, he's talking about in movies that are usually second trilogy, it's always a, a darker period of time. And that, it seems that at those times where there's impending doom, evil grows, uh, the protagonist faces increasing obstacles. And that's, those are, and that's, this, you can always expect that in the second movie of a trilogy. That's just what you should expect. If you didn't know that, I'm sorry to ruin it for you. <laughs> but that's what makes the third movie so great. But it's okay because we know the third movie's coming. But when you think about it, when you think about the second movie in a trilogy, and usually where that darkness surrounds uh, uh, the, the characters of the movie, if that's, when that is real life, when darkness surrounds you, when impending doom increases, when uh, obstacles abound, it's not a nice place to be. In fact, it's a terrible place to be. You want to run out of those places, you want to get away, but you can't. You're helpless in them. You can, no matter what you do, you cannot escape. Isaiah chapter 8 is like the second movie in a trilogy this morning. It's a passage that speaks about judgment. The first, if you will, I mean, this, it was chapter 7. Chapter 7, actually, if you look at these, chapter 7 through chapter 9, verse 7, uh, these are kind of three movies, in a sense. They really belong together. If you, you were to look at these, you need to look at the whole uh, this section from chapter 7 through chapter 9, verse 7. But chapter 8 is that dark period of time. It's a period of time where we see the increasing judgment upon, uh, the judgment that that God has already pronounced for Judah and Israel and the nations is expressed even more in this passage. Now, remember chapter 7 was when we learned about, the, we get introduced to the hero, uh, the Messiah, Emmanuel, God with us. That he is the sign uh, that we're born of the virgin that we just very appropriately read uh, from uh, the Luke passage this morning of 
of his birth signifying for the world the salvation and the forgiveness of our sins. But chapter 8 conveys for us this increasing darkness over the nation as Isaiah's prophecy focuses on God's judgment. Despite this coming darkness that we're going to find in this text, there is still always that glimmer of hope. There's always that, sh- I was going to say shadow, but it's the light that kind of proceeds on into even into this darkness from chapter 7. It's that the light of Emmanuel. And in view of this uh, coming darkness of judgment that we find here in chapter 8, God, through this chapter, gives hope. Gives hope through Isaiah's life and through Isaiah's ministry. It's wonderful. I've enjoyed looking into studying Isaiah because I see that, and I'm just vividly reminded that a prophet's ministry, a minister's ministry, if you will, is not just his teaching. It's his life as well. And we'll see it just hinted at in this chapter. We'll see it throughout the book of Isaiah. It's true for Jeremiah. It's all true for all of God's prophets. That it's oftentimes when we teach and preach the word, it's also our lives that are a symbol, a picture of, of what Christ, of the power of God in us. So hopefully this, this theme that we kind of are looking at this day would be encouraging for you to find hope in Emmanuel too. There will be times in your life where you will find, face darkness. And in a sense, everyone in this world is facing an increasing darkness. It's the increasing darkness of the judgment that is coming from God. And hopefully that we all here will make sure that we, are, we walk away knowing for certain that we have hope. Hope in God through Emmanuel, Jesus Christ. Now just as a, a historical reminder, just kind of context of, our, of chapter 8. It's a section that we've, we've just learned about the threat from uh, the nation of Israel, the northern kingdom of Israel, along with a, an alliance with Syria or Aram, modern day Syria. And that it's an alliance that's been threatening the southern kingdom, Judah, who is now, uh, who is, uh, whose leader was King Ahaz. And in fact, the Israel and Syria were conspiring to have Ahaz replaced with a puppet king. And we learned this all in chapter 7. It, when God told Ahaz that their, their conspiracy would not stand, it would not succeed, Ahaz, instead of responding in faith in God and trust in the Lord, Ahaz did not believe God. He did not continue. He was an unbeliever uh, by all his actions. And uh, he continued to put his, he put his trust in man. And Ahaz, in fact, put his trust in the king of Assyria. God himself would give Ahaz the sign of Emmanuel that we looked at last week to, as a sign to, that this would be an assurance that God's word would take place, would, would be fulfilled, that, there, that that conspiracy would not succeed. And so, but nevertheless, Ahaz turns to the king of Syria. And so we learn that in, shortly after the king of Syria does come and deliver, would deliver um, Judah, but then in turn, a few years later, would turn on Judah, would conquer Judah and try to take over the whole southern kingdom as well. But even as uh, uh, even in that in that face of this impending kind of judgment that was coming upon the southern kingdom of Judah, uh, we will find that there is hope. And so today's passage for us is really a series of three. It's a series of three oracles from God, three prophetic words from God to guide the people of God, uh, and then a, a last response. So we're just going to define it in really four messages, four messages called four prophetic messages, three from God, one from Isaiah, and that inspire the faithful because Isaiah's life and ministry is for, is really 
though it's to the southern kingdom, there's an encouragement to the faithful remnant, to the few who do believe in the Lord. And this inspires the faithful remnant to hope in God in the face of increasing darkness. Because there's nothing they can do. There's nothing they can do at this point to change the judgment that is coming. All right, so let's take a look at these 22 verses together. Uh, and may that may, um, may it be an encouragement to you in a time of increasing darkness. All right, number one, the first message we find here is God's message of swift deliverance. So God gives a message again to, his, to Judah of swift deliverance from the judgment that he had just spoken to them that's coming upon them in the, at the end of chapter 7. This message is delivered first and foremost through a two-part symbolic prophecy. Sometimes God gives a prophecy with specific words that he'll say. He'll say, this is going to happen to you. But sometimes God will give prophecy, in this case, in Isaiah's case here, through symbolic prophecy. He'll have him do something, write something, uh, have a child, uh, uh, go naked, uh, symbolic in many ways to show to the people who watch Isaiah's life that, uh, that has, there's some significance in it. This is something, uh, this is a meaning here. This two-part symbolic prophecy is centered upon the name of Meher Shalal Hashbaz. Okay, so try to say that a couple of times fast. It's kind of fun. It's a phrase that means that it's going to be translated swift in the NAS. Swift is the booty and speedy is the prey. But it could be, it's really just four nouns. So swift, booty, speed, prey. It kind of, it's just uh, four nouns. So you could put in your own preposition that you want there, whether it's, it, you could imply is or it could be to or it uh, could be on, upon. And so these are to and is are some of the more common translations. This Hebrew phrase is, uh, is just, Odd. It's not an. It's it's actually it's not a normal uh, phrase that's used. It's because it's it's the grammar of it is unusual. So it is very odd, even for a Hebrew person hearing this. This is like what is that's kind of an odd thing to to uh, phrase to say. But these uh, these four series of four nouns are in first and foremost intended by God to be written on a tablet. Look at verse one with me. Then the Lord said to me, "Take for yourself a large tablet uh, <laughs> and write on it in ordinary letters." Swift is the booty, sweet, speedy is the prey. Oh, that's a tongue twister. And so he tells, he tells, uh, God tells Isaiah to get an iPad Pro, right? And then write, no, no, he tells him to get a large tablet. I know I can't have, help us say that. Forgive me, please. Uh, a large tablet, so a large scroll, a large poster board, if you will. So some large piece of writing. So this is unusual. Usually they would just write it down into, if they were writing, they write it down into a small scroll. Right? So something that would be for visible to public display. And God wanted him then, so obviously God wanted people to be able to see whatever this phrase, this phrase that he would write onto this sign. And he told him to write this very phrase, Meher, Meher Shalal Hashbaz. So swift is the booty, speedy is the prey. And in the context of this passage, it is a testimony. It's meant to be. Well, at least you'll see, I hope you'll see, you'll believe me then when I tell you that it's supposed to be a testimony of how swift or how soon the nation of Assyria would come to deliver Judah from the threat of the Aram-Israel alliance. So that's, that's the implication of this phrase. But for confirmation of this phrase, so Isaiah must write that, God gives two witnesses to this. So that has to be seen, has to be written, it's written down, and it has to be seen before you know, the deliverance takes place as a confirmation that, take, that this happens. Verse 2 says, And I, God says, And I will take to myself faithful witnesses for testimony, Uriah the priest and Zechariah the son of Jeberechiah. 
Now, in accordance to the law of Moses, two witnesses were always required to establish the truth of a matter. You couldn't just convict somebody on one or someone, someone, one person saying you had to have at least two uh, in, independent witnesses. It is presumed here that Isaiah did not did make the sign and then posted it in such a public place so that all could see, including these two people, Uriah the priest, a priest, and Zechariah the son of Jeberechiah. Now, while the writing of the tablet seems understandable, it seems like, so here's a big, it's like, you know, we put up a poster board. We, you put it, write it on, uh, put it on one of those, uh, uh, those billboards that we see uh, off of the 101, everybody, or off the 80 or 101, and everybody would see and say, oh, it's trying to tell us something. So that's kind of what is happening here. God just has Isaiah write this big word, this phrase, up, and everybody looks at it and says, oh, what is that God trying to say to us about that? But the next symbolic part of the symbolic pro- prophecy seems a little odd. It seems weird, even. Verse 3, so I approached the prophetess, and she conceived and gave birth to a son. Then the Lord said to me, name him Meher Shalal Hashbaz. Well, that's weird. Okay. Now, God, uh, Isaiah, uh, somehow understands, probably God told him to have relations with, sexual relations with his, the prophetess. And this is presumably his wife. She's called the prophetess, probably either because she's married to a prophet or because she herself is a prophet. Uh, she, she prophesied as well. Uh, it could have been both. Anyways, uh, they have a relationship and sexual relations. They, she conceives and she gives birth to a son. But just like, you know, it's really interesting. God often, you know, when parents have a child, they have the great privilege of naming their children. But Isaiah is told by God what to name his son. You know, imagine if you have the son, your next son, and God tells you to you, I want you to name him Meher Shalal Hashbaz. <laughs> would you do it? I hope you would, because God's asking you to. But it's pretty like, uh, can I give him a nickname? Because... <laughs> uh, and so, but that is, so that is, and that is apparently what God, what Isaiah does. Now, some, uh, when the birth of this, of this child, and then being named Meheshelah Hashbaz, along with uh, the, ref, the reference later to Emmanuel in a few verses down, makes some people think that, is this the prophesied sign of the child in Isaiah 7.14? Remember Isaiah seven fourteen, a virgin will give birth to a vir- will have a will have a child, uh, and he will name him Emmanuel. Well, this child is not named Emmanuel, and what's more, this uh, presumably, if this is the same wife that gave birth to Isaiah's first son that we fought, we saw we saw in Isaiah seven, then she is not a virgin, right? Right. So that's not likely, and I don't believe that this is uh, that the fulfillment of that particular prophecy. It was just again some other woman in the court of Ahaz who uh, gave birth to a son who na- named Emmanuel. Uh, but God tells him to do this, and so he does. But God gives, at least thankfully, God gives uh, Isaiah the reason why in verse 4, an explanation of why does God want him to name his son uh, in, as a symbolic prophecy of uh, to name um, what he does. Verse 4. For, here's the reason, before the boy knows how to cry out, my father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be carried away before the king of Assyria. So, uh, you know, many of you are parents. Uh, good to have parents here with us. That was joy. I was just kind of, uh, I've, you know, as, as new parents, as many of us are parents here, you kind of have the joy remembering when your children talk. And one of the first few, few things you want your child to say is, Dad, daddy, or mommy, or, or mama, papa. Um, in fact, um, and it's a joy when you get them to say that. And it was apparently, you just think about what age was that when they started saying that? 
uh, probably on average, probably one year old, one year old maybe, uh, maybe a little earlier, a little later, but one year old is probably when they will master it consistently. They'll know what they mean, or you'll know what they mean. Uh, my daughter will call me Papa, but she'll call everything else Papa in the world as well. Uh, <laughs> and when she really needs help, she'll call me Mama, because uh, <laughs> she Mama is the one who gives help. Uh, that's just how it is, but <clears throat> just about one year old. So before this child turns one, uh, God tells Isaiah, before your son turns one, basically a Damascus and Samaria, those are the capitals of Aram and the northern kingdom of Israel. They're going to be basically taken and carried away. They're going to be conquered by the king of Assyria. So it's a promise that basically in nine months and one year, essentially, nine months and one year, uh, Assyria is going to come and conquer and deliver Damascus and Samaria, Aram, Israel, and deliver Judah from the threat of attack. So that's that's this first message. It's a pretty straightforward message, though it's delivered in a symbolic prophecy. Uh, and never, this would be very encouraging to not only Isaiah, it would be encouraging to Judah to hear this message, and this would provide a source of hope. So this is one of the kind of a good message in light of the impending judgment, uh, that uh, the impending threat of Aram, Israel. Their enemies would soon be destroyed. And it's just a, it's a, it is a reminder because of the swiftness of this. Emphasis on swift and speediness. It's a, they're so, the enemy is so insignificant that the focus on, let's just run in there and get the spoils. You know, they're just wipe, you know, swat like flies, uh, the, the enemy of the land. It reminds us that God is almighty and sovereign. It reminds us that God, when, whatever he says he will do, he will do it. It reminds us that he can do it like that. And so if he, can, if he wishes he could speak it, it could take place just like that. He doesn't even have to use the king of Assyria, but he wills to use the king of Assyria. But good news from God, the promise of God, always requires, demands a response of faith, a belief and trust in God. Sadly, of course, this was lacking in the nation of Judah, nor in the king, their king, King Ahaz. So God then gives a second message, a second message of hope. God's mess, and that's the God's message of coming judgment. A second oracle, if you will, that's given to, uh, to Isaiah to the people of Judah. And we see this in, a, in this section, we see a succession of increasing judgment, expanding judgment. First of all, we'll see that God's judgment will, will begin with the northern kingdom of Israel in verses 5 through 7. But let's read verses 5 to 7. Again, the Lord spoke to me further, saying, Inasmuch as these people, or literally it's this people, this people, have rejected the gently flowing waters of Shiloh and rejoiced in Rezin and the son of Remaliah. There, now therefore, behold, the Lord is about to bring on them the strong and abundant waters of the Euphrates, even the king of Assyria and all his glory. And it will rise up over all its channels and go over all its banks. So God's judgment here begins with the northern kingdom of, his, of Israel. And we know that just by the context. Those, they're not mentioned directly by name, but the context of that they put, they rejoice in resin, the son of Ramaliah, that it's probably, it's very likely the, the northern kingdom of Israel. Now the waters of Shiloh that is, that they have rejected here, uh, is, it refers to a stream of water. Actually in the New Testament we call this Siloam. If you remember the pool of Siloam or the t- uh, tower of Siloam. This refers to, um, at least what I read, but some of you who have gone to Israel, you may have you've seen it, is the, this water supply that is, that is underneath Jerusalem. It's a slow-moving stream of water that flowed into the city that found its source in a, water, in a spring, a fresh water spring out, just outside the city walls. And Judah and Jerusalem particularly was dependent upon this water for life. 
this was in, you know, in, in, in the land, and especially when they were under siege, as they would be with, when Assyria turns upon them, that their water would come from this spring, this flowing water, Shiloh. Now, the Shiloh or Siloam was always a symbolic reminder then. This river of life, if you will, was a reminder of God, a God who is the source of life for his people. That this flows from him, in a sense, if you will. And we see this imagery even in, in, the, uh, in Revelation. Uh, some of you studying that in the Sanisu class. And it was a Shiloh or Siloam was to be someone that we put our trust in. It's a constant when we go to get water from there. It's an expression of our trust that God is going to provide for us. But for the nation of Israel, the North Kingdom of Israel, they rejected God. They rejected the trust in the Lord. They instead fought against God by fought when they fought against Jerusalem and Judah. Since the people of Israel had put their trust in their leaders in Rezin and the son of Remaliah, uh, Rezin was the king of, uh, king of Aram and the son of Remaliah is the king of Israel, and they were trusting in man instead of God, God says to them that he was now going to bring judgment upon them. He would bring to them, since they don't trust in the gentle waters of Shiloh, God's going to bring them the abundant and strong waters of Assyria, the king of Assyria, he would come and overflood them, basically. He would take over them. <clears throat> so this prophecy, really, that we find here in, in these, two, these three verses is a ex- more explicit statement of what is already symbolized in verse 1 to 4, the swiftness of judgment upon Aram and, Syria, Aram and Israel. But the king of Israel, the king, I'm sorry, the king of Assyria would not only come and take, conquer Israel and Syria, but he would also conquer Judah. And so we see in verse 8, God's judgment would continue through the king of Assyria into the southern kingdom of Judah. There we read in verse 8, Then it, that is this, the abundant swift waters of the king of Assyria, will sweep on into Judah. It will overflow and pass through. It will reach even to the neck. And the spread of its wings will fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. It's interesting here, just, just at the very end, that God's words here is, in a sense, expressed to O Emmanuel. The, the, <clears throat> and it's probably not referring to the, the child who would be born of the virgin in Ahaz's day, but the future Emmanuel, that is, Jesus. This is his land, and God is speaking to him. But this flood of Assyria, uh, of the king of Assyria, will sweep in, will overflow and flood the whole land of Judah, the people of Judah. And it was pictured as rising up so high that it will even reach up to their neck. And so we're just, re- and this is just reminds, a reminder to us of what we already looked at in verse chapter 7. As judgment for Ahaz and Judah's rejection of trusting in God. Remember, Ahaz put his trust in Assyria. It called him, he said, I'm your son, I'm your servant, instead of the son of God, instead of the servant of God. God would allow Assyria then to overflow Judah, to take them over, to conquer them, and, and to practice, almost conquer them, to flood their nations, to take over all their fortified cities, except for Jerusalem. And that's why it's kind of neat, even as, we, even as God is in control of Assyria and uses them to take over the land of Judah, he says it will only... The flood will rise up to your neck. You know, that's kind of nice. There's hope in this. Even as this judgment is going to come up to your neck, but it's just to your neck. God limits it. God puts that limiting factor even on the judgment of, that he, that, <clears throat> the judgment of the king of Assyria that he uses. And <clears throat> the nation of Assyria will only go so far. 
And the reason is hinted by the final words of this verse. <clears throat> that is, because this land, that is, the king of Assyria will flood, <clears throat> is Emmanuel's land. <clears throat> oh, boy. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> this is Messiah's land. This is pro- the promised land. Promised land to the people of Israel, but it's the promised land to the son of David. This is the promised land to Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, God with us. This is his land. And so because of that, God says, God is implied, and the implication is that he will only allow the judgment to rise up to the neck. And that's why uh, Assyria is only successful, only able to take over all of Judah except for Jerusalem. And when we get to the historical record in Isaiah 36 and 37, we'll see that he will actually, there's, there's a, God will ordain, sovereignly orchestrate things so that the king of Assyria is drawn away from taking over the land because of God's sovereignty. But in verse 9, we see the judgment continue. So it's gonna, it's gonna take, there's gonna be a judgment on the northern kingdom, there's gonna be a judgment on the southern kingdom, but there's also gonna be a judgment on the peoples of the nations. God's judgment will include the nations. Uh, as well as Assyria. Verse 9 says, Be broken, O peoples. So now it's plural, O peoples. So peoples of the world, peoples of the nation, the peoples of, this, of the earth. Be broken, O peoples, and be shattered, and give ear all remote places of the earth. So this is like, this is everybody, all the nations of this world. Give ear, listen to what I'm about to say to you. Gird yourselves, and yet be shattered. Gird yourselves, yet be shattered. God just repeated himself, so whenever he repeats himself, that's the emphasis. Gird yourselves. That is, draw ready for a battle. You know, when you get ready, soldiers get ready for battle, they've got to gird up their loins, draw up their clothes, so that they can, you know, fight unhindered. But you said, yeah, put up, bring up, you know, defend yourselves, but you're going to be shattered. Twice, God says, defend yourselves, get ready, but you'll be shattered. Defies a plan. Have a battle plan. But it will be thwarted. State a proposal. Make a plan. Make a how you're going to withstand the oncoming judgment. But it will not stand. The peoples and the remote places of the earth are told to defend themselves. To try. Gird yourselves. Devise a plan. State a proposal. Get a strategy ready for your defense. But you will only be shattered. Thwarted will be caused to not stand that is god's promise to the nations that are rise up in opposition to god and the reason is given in the end of verse 10 for god is with us for god is with judah you can rise up and you want to take over the the people of god you want to destroy the people of god but you will not succeed you will you will be shattered you will be thwarted you will not stand because ultimately it's because of Emmanuel, because of the Messiah. God's presence is all the protection that his people need. Because this is not just any people that you're attacking. This is God's people. This is not just any land that you're trying to attack. This is God's land. God, because simply for the fact that God is with the nation of Judah, with the people of Judah, the people of Israel. <clears throat> And this is just encouragement because we're reminded that when God is present with us, there is salvation, deliverance from all darkness. 
whatever darkness the people of God face, as long as God is with us, we know that our salvation is secure. We see this truth all throughout scriptures. We see it in Psalm 23 and when David writes of the Lord being his shepherd, when he says that even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil or fear no harm. Why? For you are with me. Romans 8.31, New Testament kind of equivalent of it, says if God is for us, who can be against us? There are many dangers, many dark reasons for darkness in our life. But the greatest threat, the greatest darkness that any person in this world can face, even though we do not realize it sometimes, is the darkness of sin. It's sin. You know, we think of things that are in this world that, oh, that I could face are much, are not, are much worse. We could think of illness, right? Life debilitating illness. That's blindness. We could think of maybe a loss of a, of an, of a limb or an ability loss of a loved one. You think about those things, and those are devastating to the heart. And when I think about it, they're hard things, dark things, difficult things. But in, the, in relation to all of eternity, these things are just for this short life. But sin, sin in our lives that is unresolved, that is not cast before the Lord, confessed of, repented of, has, a, has an impact on our lives that lasts for eternity. Sin's result is an eternal darkness, eternal suffering, eternal separation from God, eternal agony. It's an eternal loss of love. It's eternal debilitating disease. It's an eternal separation from everything we love. Darkness of sin means in a, the reality of an impending judgment for all of us. And this judgment is coming. It is coming whether you believe it or not. And that is why we as believers, when you, we know unbelievers in our life, out of love for them, we, we want to share with them Christ. We want to tell them that the darkness is coming. And there, there's a way out through the light of Emmanuel. God with us. For those of us who are, who all of us face that judgment too. But because we are believers in Christ, God is with us and he will deliver us through the impending and coming darkness. There is hope. There is, in, there is hope in the face of incoming judgment and that is in Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, because God is with us. Although this hope is for all of people, all God's people, and only few ever sometimes realize it. And I know in Ahaz and Judah's days, in this, in this particular Isaiah's days, few did realize it, which leads to God's third message for the people of Israel, the people of Judah. Maybe it's a message that we need to hear today too. God's message of admonition, of warning, instruction. And we find this in verse 11 to 15. For thus says, for thus the Lord spoke to me with mighty power and instructed me not to walk in the way of this people, saying. So God now addresses Isaiah personally. Now God has been speaking to Isaiah, but the messages have been more God, uh, God speaking to Isaiah so he would speak to Judah. But it seems here that God is now speaking to Isaiah for Isaiah. For Isaiah and the people of faith, the few followers of Isaiah. 
Remember, there would not be many who would respond to this message. And so Isaiah was strengthened by this stern warning from God. It's, he spoke to him with mighty power, it says. It's, so it's, it seems that it was a strong uh, kind of encouragement, exhortation. Someone just kind of sending Isaiah down. Now, listen to me. This is stuff you really need to hear. I'm serious. Uh, just like sometimes when, when you, for, as children, our parents will sit us down and give us a, a stern instruction. When they're stern, you kind of know, oh, I better listen up. They're pretty serious. There's something I need to hear, hear in this. At the heart of this warning... For Isaiah is the simple warning to basically don't be like the majority of the people of Judah. Don't be, don't follow the rest of the people of this world. You know, sometimes it just is just expedient. It's just kind of easy to just follow the rest of the world. But there are some things, especially when it comes to spiritual things, it's wise to not follow the rest of the world. And in this case, God tells Isaiah, do not follow the rest of the world. In response to this threat of the Aram-Israel alliance. Don't turn like everyone else. In fear to trust in the king of Assyria. Turn and trust in me, he says. Verse 12, it continues on. We see how this, this exhortation or this admonition continues and develops. You are not to say, it is a conspiracy. In regard to all that this people call a conspiracy. And you are not to fear what they fear or be in dread of it. The verbs in this passage are, have now switched to plural form. They were speaking to Isaiah, singular. Now they're plural. So imply, indicate that the words that God is speaking to Isaiah are meant to also be heard by the faithful few who follow Isaiah, who are his followers, his disciples, as he'll refer to later on in this passage. So the people of Judah, God tells them, were, are, were struck by fear when the conspiracy of Aram and Israel was discovered. They were all afraid. They were undread. They said, oh, what are we going to do? We can't fight we can't fight Israel and Syria. But Isaiah and his followers are encouraged to not fear. Instead, verse 13, it is the Lord of hosts whom you should regard as holy. And he shall be your fear and he shall be your dread. See, the one whom God's people should fear is God, right? The Lord of hosts himself, the one who really does have all the power, the Lord Almighty. God's people should regard him as holy. You know, God is not uh, like your... Sometimes we think of that great-grandfather, you know, well, all nice, but he's powerless. He's weak, you know, he's, hurt, he's, he's in frail. God is God, the Lord of hosts, almighty. We, and we are to accept his word and to trust in him. And when they do, we read in verse 14, then he shall become a sanctuary. God will become a place of safety for those who fear and trust in him. But to those who do not trust in him, God gives a warning. The latter half of verse 14. But to both the houses of Israel, for Judah and Israel, both nations, because both southern kingdom and northern kingdom, because they didn't trust God, this is what God will become. He will become a stone to strike and a rock to stumble over and a snare and a trap for the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Many will stumble over them. Then they will fall and be broken. They will even be snared and caught. So instead of a sanctuary, God becomes a stone, a rock, a snare, a trap to the very people that who, who have called him God. God becomes, if you will, in our New Testament terminology, a stone of stumbling, a trap for those who do not trust in him. As many These words are, may sound familiar to some of us because these are quoted in the New Testament. They're quoted in one place, particularly by Peter in 1 Peter uh, chapter 2, verse 8. Verse 14 is quoted there, warning the people of God of the danger of disbelief. See, 
When you believe in God, he becomes a sanctuary for you. But when you don't believe in God, you don't trust God, then he becomes a stone of, to, to strike or a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to us. 1 Peter 2.8 calls it a, a, this, this stone to strike, a rock to stumble over, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word, and to this doom they were also appointed. See, Peter explains that when you have a heart of unbelief towards Jesus Christ, towards God, then you, he becomes a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. It's something that you would like trip over or something that would fall upon you, you'd be hurt by. And why do you stumble? Because you're disobedient to the word. You don't obey the word. And the result of not obeying the word is doom. You're destined for doom when you do not obey or believe the word of God. Disbelief leads to disobedience and rejection of God's word, which in turn has the very unavoidable consequence of doom. The doom that you're destined for, appointed for. God says, withdraws his, his grace upon your life. You keep just not believing, rejecting, rejecting, rejecting God. There will be a time where he'll just no longer, no longer protect you with his, his common grace. He'll just let you go and, chew, and to, to continue to, in a state of unbelief to the, into the doom that you will be destined for you. This warning is not just for Isaiah's day. This warning is for our day. It's for Peter's day as well. Deliverance from sin, deliverance from God's judgment is through believing in him and his son, Jesus Christ. The darkness is coming. It's coming. It's judgment. And either believe and you'll find him to be, God will be a sanctuary to you, or don't believe and you'll find him to be a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. If you are here and you do not have not yet believed in Jesus Christ, I invite you today to turn in faith to Jesus Christ. Don't be stumbled over Jesus. Yes, some of the things about him can be difficult to believe, understand. But know this, that this Jesus Christ came to this earth, born of a virgin, died and died on the cross for all our sins, for your sins. So that you, when you believe in him, when you turn from your sins and believe in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, you will find him to be your sanctuary and your savior and your Lord and deliver you from the coming judgment. From sin, the consequences of sin in eternity, but even sin's impact on your life today. Your life's messed up. It's because of sin. This world's messed up because of sin. Deliverance comes through Jesus Christ. Strength to stand in this world that is cursed by sin is through Jesus Christ. Turn to him today. That's the warning that God gives us. Let us be people who believe and obey. Now in the final message then we, that we come to our, in our text today, in verse 16 to 22, is, is really Isaiah's response it's Isaiah's response to God's messages, these three oracles that, we've, that he's given to him. And so, if, because it's, but it's, since it's written down, it's also a message from Isaiah to us today as well. So we might call this Isaiah's response, but it's Isaiah's message 
It's a fourth message in this text. Isaiah's message of hope. It's of how he, Isaiah finds hope, responds in hope in God. He affirms his faith in God and exhorts his followers, those few who follow him, the remnant, to believe as well. So we read in verse 16, then this. Bind up the testimony. Seal the law among my disciples. So Isaiah is now exhorting uh, people in general to bind up the testimony and seal up the law. Now, testimony and law are, are two words. Remember, as we've been going through Psalm 119, these are two very common words for the law of God, for the, the, the word of God. So this is referring to the prophecies of God. So testimony and law, just two words that refer to God's word. Now, the command, bind and seal, basically are, what kind of, are words that describe protection. You want to make it secure. You bind something so they won't be, fall off. It won't, you seal something so you won't be, you know, it'll be protected from, from being lost. So this, these convey the need to treasure and to protect God's word from being lost. So in the face of darkness, then, God's people, Isaiah, God through Isaiah is saying that, exhorting his, his followers to be people who treasure God's word above all. We need people who bind up God's law with testimony and seal God's law among us. You might say, treasure it in our hearts. Instead of being focused on what we think or what others say in the face of coming darkness or increasing darkness around us, we need to focus on what God says. And that's always the case, isn't it? Whenever I'm bothered by something that's troubling me and and it just seems... uh, that I cannot do anything about it. If I just only focus on that, I just only face find myself in increasing despair, increasing uh, temptation to to not uh, to lose hope. But when I remember God's word, when I go back to God's word, when I turn back to Him, what does God promise about this? What does God say about this? Uh, that He will never leave nor forsake me. That He will cause all things to work together for good. That I need I do not need to fear any harm or evil because. God's with me. His rod, his staff, they will comfort me and protect me. God will prepare a table in in the presence of my enemies. These kind of promises and more, when I remember they cause me to to look to God, and they do the same for you, I believe, as well. When we find ourselves in the face of coming, increasing darkness, God's people need to treasure God's word above all. Isaiah further adds in, in verse 17, And I will wait. I will wait for the Lord who is, hiding, who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob. I will even look eagerly for him. Now, we just came back from a retreat in October on the theme of waiting on the Lord. And waiting is basically uh, patience or patience time. You know, waiting upon God it requires faith or faith times time, right, or something like that, multiply times time. It's like faith in God over a long period of time. That's, that's waiting. We, we're just exercising our faith over a long period of time. And there are times in our life where we need to wait. And then here in this face of in coming darkness upon, upon the nation of Judah, Isaiah says, I will wait. There's nothing I can do about it. Syria is coming, but I will wait. I will wait for the Lord, even though it is he who seems to be is, is described as hiding his face from the house of Jacob. God, Isaiah says, I will wait upon God even though I do not see him in my life. And there are times in our lives, and this is, this is 
this is very, very human in a sense. This is very true for us. There are times in our lives where we don't feel like God's, you don't see God's handiwork in our lives, right? Say, so, where is God in this? How is God in this particular situation? It's hard to see. We can only see just this far, if anything. We can't even look up. And it just seems like God's not present. Well, that's when we can be, we need to learn to be like Isaiah and say, I will wait. Even though it seems like God is hiding a space from me. I will even look eagerly for him. Even though I don't, he's not, you know, we, we all say, where is God? Where is God? Well, look for him. Keep looking for him. Look eagerly for him. Seek him. It's encouraging for all of us who walk in dark times. God's promises in his word, though, are, are meant to spur us to faith, to believe in him, even when we don't see him. Isaiah's faith is strengthened, uh, not only through the, his, God's word, through, but it's, it's further strengthened through God's word that's revealed in the signs and the symbols, symbolic prophecies of Isaiah's life, which we find in verse 18. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are for signs and wonders in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells in Mount Zion. So Isaiah just reiterates that I'm, he reminds himself that oh, my name and the names of my children are, are meant, given to me as signs and wonders. They're meant to, for not only for Israel, but for myself as well, to encourage us that God is not far. His own name, the Lord is salvation. Isaiah means the Lord is salvation. Is a reminder that God, the source of salvation is from the Lord. His first son that we saw in Isaiah chapter 7, Shear Jashub, means a remnant will return. Or a remnant will repent, even. It could be it mean repent. It's also encouragement to the people of Judah, that for, even for Isaiah, that even though the nation is not turning to God, and it means in, inevitable judgment for them, yet there will be a remnant, there will be few who will repent. And even if they're taken away, they will return. They will return to God, they will return to the land. His second son, Meher Shalal Hashbaz, which we already discussed earlier, reminds him of the, the swiftness of God to bring judgment. But that swiftness of God... It reminds us, too, that just, just as swiftly God can bring salvation. They are reminders to Israel and the nation that God will not forsake Israel. Nor will he, but he, instead, he will fulfill his promise to save them from coming judgment. But the people in general do not believe this message. And so we see how the people of God are to respond. Verse 19. When they say to you, so when the people of God, when the majority of the people say to you this, Consult the mediums and the spiritists who whisper and mutter. Should not a people consult their God? Should they consult the dead on behalf of the living? To the law and to the testimony. If they do not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. They will pass through the land hard-pressed and famished. It will turn out that when they are hungry, they will be enraged and curse their king and their God as they face upward. Then they will look to the earth and behold distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be driven away into darkness. You see, even this, the whole chapter ends with this theme of darkness. But it was in those days that when the threat of danger, when people, and even, even today, when people find they don't know what to do, where they turn, they, often, they don't turn to God, then they turn to other people. And in those days, they turn to mediums and spiritists. They say, what are the, what are the mediums and spiritists say? Let's find out. From them. Let's look to them for the answer. There are still today. You go walk. Sometimes I walk down the street of Clement. I see the, the fortune teller shop. And so, ooh, we can go in there. Uh, sometimes people go back. To, I've t- heard of some family members who go back to Hong Kong, have their, you know, their, their future read, you know. And, and those things are a curse. 
Because if you hear something bad, it's like, you know, you believe that you'll allow that to be a constant reminder to you of that. That's what's going to happen to me. You live in fear of those things. This is, even today, people still look to medium spirits, to, the, to uh, spirit beings for guidance. But that's what was happening in the day of Israel. They were turning away from God and looking to dead spirits. That's really what the, the mediums and spirits, they were channeling dead spirits. And the rebuke of God is that should the people, shouldn't people of God consult their God? It's kind of, isn't that obvious? Why do you look to dead people instead of the living? And the rebuke for Israel and Judah is don't look to mediums and spiritists. Look to who? What? To the law and to the testimony. Verse 20. That's who we should look to. Look to the law and to the testimony. Isaiah exhorts his listeners, look to God, look to his word. That's where you're going to find the answers. If they would just listen to what Isaiah was saying, they would have known that, oh, there's nothing we can do about this judgment. It's coming. God's promises, God's word is enough. Our society today, we value experts, don't we? Oh, man, we read, a, read the news, you know, you know, and we do, and experts have a role. We would say, doctors say this, four out of five dentists recommend this, sociologists claim this, I guess doctors don't, dentists don't always agree, but sociologists claim this, scientists believe this, leading scholars speak, and the whole world follows. But if we are God's people, then his word is enough. His word is enough when it comes to the inevitable coming darkness of judgment. What does God say? That should settle it for us. And those, so there's a warning in this passage, those who speak contrary to God's word, God says, they have no dawn. There's no light. There's no day for them. Dawn is that early light, right? If you ever, you don't like the darkness, you look for the dawn. That's the hope. The light is coming, the full light of day. But for those who reject God's word, who speak contrary to God's word, who defy God's word, there's no dawn for them. Not only is there no dawn for them, but they are doomed to darkness. They will only find despair. They will curse God, yes, it says even, but they will only find darkness. So where's whose word? Will you trust him, people of God? Will you trust in God? Yes, whatever trials you may be facing, you may turn to seek this, the the, the counsel of our scholars today, our doctors, our dentists, our sociologists, scientists, and they have a place. But they, at best, are humans, human knowledge, finite, limited knowledge. Our ultimate source of knowledge, information for life, for hope, is in God, in his word. Trust in the words of God. Be sure that you ne- we don't forget to look to the law and to the testimony. Well, these are the four messages. And this chapter, as you kind of recovered it, is a chapter, just reading through it, it's a chapter of darkness. Judgment is never exciting nor thrilling to study. Uh, in fact, I was thinking, wow, it's so, I was reflecting on it's so gloom and doom as I was reading this chapter. But I've tried to emphasize throughout that there is hope. There's hope in Emmanuel. There's hope in the truth 
of the law and the testimony of God's word. And for all of us, we need to just remember in this in these particularly these days that judgment is coming. Judgment is coming. The darkness is coming. There's nothing we can do to avoid it. We cannot stop God's judgment upon this world. And that judgment is coming. First and foremost, then, I ask, where is your hope? Where is your hope? Is your hope in Emmanuel? Is it in hope in God with us? His presence will be your deliverance in the face of coming judgment and darkness. And then, let's bring this hope to others. That would be our application. Let's share this hope with others. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. thank you for these truths. And we know, Lord, it is because of your holiness, your justice, your perfect wrath that judgment comes upon sinful man. And, Lord, we, today in our society, we don't like to hear messages like this. I confess, Lord, it's a little awkward to even talk about it. But these are your words. These are treasures. Father, it would be cruel instead to tell a people that all is well when, when all is not well. So, Father, we thank you for these words of love. That you would warn Judah, Isaiah, Israel, the nations, the peoples, the remotest, people, remotest ends of the earth, that judgment is coming. Father, thank you for warning us of the same. And thank you, Lord, that you in Christ Jesus, in Emmanuel, have provided the way of escape, the way of salvation and deliverance. Father, we pray that we would continue to be people who put our hope in Jesus, even not only for the, for, for the deliverance from coming judgment, but deliverance and strength in the face of whatever darkness we may be facing in life today. But Father, we pray most importantly that we would share this hope with the people of our world, the loved ones in our lives, even the enemies of our lives, so that they would be delivered from that coming judgment that terrible day of wrath, that day that we would wish upon no one. So we pray, Father, that you would give us opportunities, open doors this season to share of, of what you have done. Even at our Thanksgiving tables this week, may we give thanks for the light that is in Christ, for Jesus who died on the cross for our sins so that we might know forgiveness and eternal life. This we pray, Father, in the name of our Lord and Savior. Amen. Amen. All right, God bless.